Ladies and gentlemen, hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Joe Genie. This is Ambassadors at Large. And hello and welcome back to another episode of Ambassadors at Large. This is episode 30 and it's going to be about populism and nationalism and the rise of these things, why this has happened, and what the ramifications are going forward. I'm delighted to welcome back Mark McNamee, who is a uh, he's now a senior analyst for Europe for the Frontier Strategy Group, though of course all, posi- all opinions he expresses today are his own. Uh, Mark, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you very much. Glad to be back on. So... A lot has happened since the last time you were on the podcast, and we sort of like saw this coming a little bit uh, back in 2015 and 2016, but I think the extent to which it's happened has kind of surprised people. So you've kind of got a theory that you've developed about what has caused the rise of populism and nationalism and and sort of anti-globalist backlash, if you will. Uh, I hesitate to use the term globalist because it's so loaded and so associated Mm. with certain people but uh there's this there's this clear sort of backlash against globalization and internationalism in favor of of nationalism and uh, it's not like we haven't seen this before in human history but it seems it seems it seemed unlikely back in 2012 when i was in school and uh, you know or even 2014 uh that it would be this virulent so uh Perhaps uh, if we could start off by you offering your your sort of take on what has caused uh, this surge that has led to to Brexit, uh, to the rise of uh, of Donald Trump in, in the United States, uh, and uh, as we are recording, the French elections, the first round, are coming to a conclusion, and Marine Le Pen is projected to do quite well, but uh, we, we may actually know the results during the course of this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The timing's pretty, pretty, pretty good here. Um, yeah, it's, uh, we could, you could probably just retitle this uh, podcast that we're doing is, you know, everything that's happened in the last year, <laughs> right? Um, this has been on the front of everyone's minds, you know, since the Brexit became, uh, started to become a bigger concern, of course, prior to the, the June vote last summer, you know, and this, all of these trends have really been sort of come into focus <clears throat> uh, in, in the past year here, and, and it's really shocked a lot of people. However, it, it shouldn't have been that shocking. You know, at Frontier Strategy Group, we've been paying attention to a lot of these trends. Uh, to be totally honest, we were we were a little bit uh, shocked by some of them as well. We we didn't necessarily predict Brexit, uh, as an example, but um, the the drivers are uh, you know decades in the making, right? So when you're looking at you know these returns to economic nationalism and, and economic protectionism, uh, it, you know people driving for a stronger political identity, national identity. You know, you hear, whether it's in the U.S. or, or, or in the U.K. here, uh, I'm, I'm based in London, you know, you, you talk to people from up north and they say, I don't recognize my country anymore. And they even say, I don't, I, I don't even like going to London because I don't recognize London. This isn't, this isn't the U.K., this isn't the England that I, you know, grew up and was, was raised on, right? So, so there's a lot of sense of sort of returning back to sort of these halcyon days when supposedly, uh, you know, things were right and better and, and, and the nation was serving these people's interests, right? Um, so, I mean, you know, getting fundamentally, all of that said, you know, for all the speculation out there, I mean, fundamentally, it's very, very emotional reasons, the, you know. You can talk to a Trump voter, voter a Brexit voter, or, or voters for the anti-establishment across Europe, and you know it's these aren't necessarily the most logical 
arguments. And I'm, I'm not saying that in a critical way. I, I'm, I'm just saying fundamentally, the support is just more driven from general sense of sort of, of dissatisfaction and, and, and anger and, and, and fundamentally fear, really, at, at, at the root of it. And so, you know, looking at it from that lens, what fundamentally are they so afraid of, that average Trump voter or, or, the, or the Brexit voter, right? And, and that's why you have to sort of look at those emotional reasons, because there isn't a lot of sort of policy integrity related to this. I mean, that's how you have these incredible, strange phenomenon of, you know, people voting for Obama two times and then voting for Trump, who is technically a Republican, but isn't even truly a Republican. And then you have people who are diehard Republicans voting for Trump, despite the fact that he's not a real, you know, Reagan Republican in any fashion. Um, same types of things could be said here in, in the UK with with the support that that you know the Brexit camp got. Um, I, I feel so, you know I feel like there's mm-hmm. there's two aspects of this that that kind of play out and they're kind of interrelated. Um, I, I think you've hit upon the the sense of kind of relative deprivation, the sense that things are not as good as they used to be, and and things used to be better before, and there was more economic certainty, and there was more prosperity before, and a lot of communities, especially rural communities in a lot of countries, you know, the UK, the US, many countries um, in, in the industrialized world ha- have kind of been hit hard by uh, globalizing forces and uh, the the effects of of free trade, but also the effects of automation and transfer to the service. Economy. Economy. There's a whole bunch of factors, uh, but it kind of bears itself out in two ways. You get economic nationalism, and economic nationalism isn't necessarily new. So I, I right now I'm doing a job for the IMF, and uh, of course, I must say, all views expressed here are my own, uh, not the funds, uh, but I'm... <laughs> I'm researching some of the history of the IMF, and one thing that comes up at every annual meeting is the managing director warns everyone against protectionism. <laughs> every <Yep>. year, <laughs> right. dating back to like 1947, you know, we must right, exactly. resist the siren song of protectionism. So the idea yep. that sort of like you know this industry is under threat because of globalizing forces uh, that's not new. But but there's another element of it that I'm that I'm afraid of, which is the 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 ethnic nationalism, the sense that that demographic change is kind of swamping a lot of countries that that used to be relatively homogenous and that there's this backlash against that like oh these the, you know these these other people are coming in whoever they may be and they you know they they pose an economic threat to you know they take low wage jobs etc uh, but they also just pose a, a sort of cultural threat and that's the part that really scares me because that part seems to be really new and I feel like Trump in particular seized upon that and you could argue that that some of the Brexit campaigners did likewise right yeah, absolutely. And, and there's lots of roots to this, right? You're touching on the economic aspect. And I think your point, though, is, is a really good one when we're talking about immigration. In the same way that, you know, economic protectionism and backlash against globalization isn't new. I mean, this has been going on, frankly, since the early 70s, right? I mean, we're talking about 40, 50, four or five decades of this. Um, this the idea of, of you know, uh, anger at migrants or anger at the foreigner is most definitely not new either, of course. I mean, we can trace that back even more decades, right? So I think more fundamentally is that these groups, and, and, and sort of the point I was getting at earlier, are they sort of feel like they lack a shared identity anymore. So now the enemy isn't uh, necessarily that external force, right? So in the, let's say in the Soviet period, at least we had this external enemy. So any, you know, we had, there were migrant issues at the time. We had, you know, foreigners coming into the country, this could all sort of be sort of distilled and managed because fundamentally we could at least sort of look internally, find a unifying principle, you know, against this external force, this, you know, this political, economic, militaristic threat in the Soviet Union. And so you could sort of, 
you know, dispel and calm some of these, you know, smooth a lot of these, these issues, right? Now you don't quite have that, right? So there isn't that unifying force or principle. And now, you know, if, if you take sort of this, you know, large historical view, in the last 25 years, people frankly feel disappointed that, you know, for people of our generation and, and the older generation, you know, certainly sort of feel like, you know, we thought the game was over. You know, we won democracy. They should be picking that up everywhere. If they're not, why aren't they? Is it something we're doing wrong? You know, what's going on? Why isn't the world following our lead nicely, peacefully, you know, getting in line like the, you know, ducks in a row behind the mother and everyone's happy and at peace and go, everyone's moving in the right direction. And instead we're seeing, you know, a lot of anti-Americanism abroad. We're seeing, you know, autocrats standing up in the face of, of America, uh, you know, obviously wars across several Middle Eastern countries, including other, you know, civil conflicts globally. And so things aren't quite as neat. And, and that, that victory parade that, you know, in the early 90s uh, didn't seem to totally play out for the last 25 years. So so now, I mean, getting back to your original question, when you talk about, you know, migrants or, or the, the other, right, the other becomes internal. Okay, so it might be in the form of migrants, but it also is in the form, you know, look at the severe polarization within the U.S. and likewise in the U.K. and elsewhere uh, between the political parties. You know, this is about, you know, internal identity now. The other has become internal, right? So that, that fundamental cultural, political, economic threat isn't the Soviet Union or earlier, say, Nazi Germany or prior to that, you know, other global enemies. Now it's, you know... And that's why fundamentally, these are all, like, keep this in perspective historically, these are all really, really problems of luxury. We don't have nukes pointed at us, you know, this isn't the Cuban Missile Crisis, you know. We're not in Vietnam and we're watching body bags coming back by the thousands every week. We're in a really new era, you know. None of us are worried about being drafted into the military. You know, the biggest, you know, physical threat, there's no real existential threat to the U.S. or to most of our allies, frankly. You know, the real threat is sort of this unpredictable, strange phenomenon of terrorism, which fundamentally isn't, it, it, frankly, is not an existential threat to the U.S. or the U.K. for that matter. Um, so th then you're getting into these identity issues. And that's why I'm talking about this is how it's really just emotive, fundamentally. People feel like they're losing their loss of community, loss of culture, loss of respect when, you know, with automated jobs, you know, replacing, you know, the, the former steel worker or whoever it was. Um, lack of job growth and opportunity, lack of rising real wages. Uh, and so fundamentally we see people sort of this playing out politically and finding a, a political outlet for a lot of these decades-long uh, trends. Yeah, I feel like the, 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 the terrorism risk in particular, it, it's kind of, it, it's not completely different than what we've seen in the past. But, you know, during the Cold War, there was always this 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 sense that, Oh, the you know the communist ideas are going to infiltrate the minds of people in 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 our society, whatever country we might be in, and that that's dangerous, and that they might try to subvert the state. Um, but the sense was that they were being controlled by uh, Moscow, which was a a rational actor which faced mutually assured destruction and would it would sort of limit what they were what they were doing um, right. it, because of the possibility of. A, of retaliation, asymmetric terrorist groups don't really face that problem, and so you you see that what it what it creates is this insidious thing where like one I mean it reminds me of the the I mean there's been a series of attacks in in Paris, but um, there was the one where they found the fake uh, passport that 
that suggested that one of the uh, attackers was a refugee, even though mm, he wasn't. Mm-hmm. But the, oh, and the, the Ru- Russian media was happy to, to yeah, use that story. <laughs> yeah, and the, the the fake passport basically tarnished all you know million Syrian refugees who who left uh, Syria to go to Europe that year. Uh, and so it's the basically it's the idea asymmetric terrorism is really insidious in a way because it it basically in the in the minds of of uh, people it create it creates the possibility of basically like a fifth column of anybody who comes from that group whatever that group may be and and it's, right. it's and so like even though the threat is not nearly as serious as what we faced during the cold war uh in terms of like total nuclear annihilation in some ways it's more it's more vicious because of the the incentives that it, it creates for people to treat each other and, and assume things about each other right it, no exactly it, it's it it's the uncertainty the unpredictability the uncontrollability of of terrorism it, you know at least you know in in the cold war in the, there were sort of rules of engagement right i mean you know to avoid nuclear annihilation you know they set up the you know washington moscow hotline and and there are periods of course where you have sort of this these you know these ebbs and flows of of uh you know greater threat of of nuclear disaster but you know they come together they i mean they sign several treaties you know implementation's a different issue but but nonetheless the, like there was an understanding. There was someone to speak to. They were they were in uniforms from on the other side, right? You could identify, you know, that other. In this case, you know, a little bit different, to, difficult to identify the other. You know, we we can't predict who's going to become a terrorist in the future. You know, there there isn't a real easy, clear profile of of those individuals, and we can start rounding them up immediately. There's it's it's just it's not controllable. It's it's less certain. And but to your point, it's also I mean. When you think about the risk of, you know, the evisceration of our species off the planet, which had been a threat for decades, compared to what, you know, some a couple lone wolf terrorists can maybe do in in a Western society, uh, I mean, the there's the threats are incomparable. There's nothing to even talk about. But the the, the sense of fear is so large, precisely because of that the uncertainty, the, the uncontrollability. You know, at least in the in the Soviet period, if, if there was a new coming, we knew where it was coming from and when. <laughs> Which which gives, makes you maybe relax a little bit more with terrorism. You don't know if it's going to, you know, be tomorrow or or in two hours, and and where and what city and how many people would be hurt. So, so yep. it, it's that aspect. Right? Yep. That was really the thing that struck me about the the events on the Korean Peninsula and over the course of the last week mm. was like. Uh, I was like, no, this is a state actor where the doctrine of mutually assured destruction still applies, uh, where it looked mm-hmm. like we were going to preemptively attack them because of their nuclear test. I was like, are we really doing this? This is stupid. Like, why are we doing this? Like, this is a conventional threat. We know what we have decades yeah. of experience with this. Yes, yes. And and decades of experience with this particular actor, right? This wasn't this isn't new by any means uh, in dealing with North, North Korea. No, you're exactly right, and I mean and that that sort of brings up the the wider scope of Trump's foreign policy. Um, uh, you know, I don't know how much you want to dig into this much, but you know, you, when you look at what he's done with Syria, relations with with Russia, uh, you know, in his campaign talking about his the the type of relations he intends to have with China, accusing them of being a currency manipulator, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, all of these in his campaign, he he basically said something radical, which appealed to you know the anti-establishment. Uh, voters, it's something very emotive. You know, they liked hearing something new, rattle things, you know, shake things up in a in a stagnant Washington D.C. So he comes from a pretty, you know, uh, strong position. You know, s- says some pretty radical policies, and then 
as we've seen in the last month in particular, stepping back pretty dramatically to very, very, very conventional, traditional U.S. foreign policy, um, you know, U.S. foreign policies um, and objectives. So, um, and, and that's frankly looking forward. That's what I see more out of him. He's not a foreign policy guy, obviously. Um, you know, the people on his staff are actually, you know, now that it's been shaken up a bit in the last couple of months, uh, a lot of them, uh, you know, are pretty traditional, you know, thinkers when it comes to how, you know, the, U- the U.S.'s role in the world and how we should be projecting our power. Um, so we'll see. I mean, I, I think in the end we'll, we're dealing with the Trump whose foreign policy, you know, in, in these four years will probably sim- be pretty similar to very likely what Hillary would have done internationally, you know, had she been elected. Yeah, although one big difference is I think Hillary would have stood up and promoted human rights, and Trump just doesn't mm. just doesn't care. Mm-hmm. Um, so true, it's, true. it's interesting Agreed. from a values perspective. Uh, the United States has kind of stopped being an exceptional nation and has just become mm. a, a great power uh, in, right. in that respect. No, absolutely, and I, I I definitely agree with you, and that and that's a, that's a good one to, to to highlight in particular, and and that brings up now something which again i really really don't think fundamentally trump and his team would allow it to occur but it is the idea of sort of spheres of influence right that's sort of the the uh, opposing policy program if you're not going to have sort of this the rules-based order the you know uh focus and this concentration on human rights and and humanitarian issues and, and democracy promotion etc cetera, etc cetera, um then I, the alternative sort of becomes well let's revert back to uh, 19th century Congress of Vienna type style spheres of influence. But uh, I mean, related to that one, that's not really that workable fundamentally. Um, Americans themselves would be highly dissatisfied to simply basically, I mean, that spheres of influence is a, a tacit retreat of American influence globally, you know, everywhere around the world, which is frankly what most Americans they don't want to put the resources towards it, right? But they do sort of tacitly expect that to be the reality. So you have a sort of a, a natural dilemma, which has been a dilemma in U.S. foreign policy, you know, since World War II, frankly. Um, but the other important thing here is that, you know, in in the in the imagination, the series of influence world seems like you know a, a, a better alternative to sort of the you know, inadequate results, I suppose, that we've gotten out of this, you know, the, the current Western liberal system that, that we've expanded over the last several decades. Um, but fundamentally, living in one is really not all it's cracked up to be. It seems appealing now where we're sitting, but, you know, we we clearly forget historically what it's actually like to live in a spheres of world, spheres of influence world. I mean, the U.S., I think, in the end would be fundamentally probably come out okay, Right. Our allies would most definitely not, which means it makes it harder for the U.S. to project its influence overseas. Um, but it would inevitably, in fact, lead to much more conflict than we're seeing. And not just conflict, but much less economic growth, much more economic protectionism. Um, you'd see economic uh, conflicts. You'd see, obviously, political and military conflicts on, on, in border areas. Um, and, I mean, if you want to talk about series of influence and what that looks like, if you want to look at a real actual example in the last five, ten years, Syria is the prime example of a spheres of influence world. The U.S. sort of retreating from the region, saying it's too messy, too difficult to deal with, let regional powers sort of cut it up and figure it out. Well, now look at the results. Obviously, I mean, aside from the extreme humanitarian disaster, 
look then at you know the migrant levels and the security issues that, and 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 how it's impacting voters across all of Europe because of what's happened in the last two to three years with migrants leaving Syria. We look at what Russia's doing there, which is in fact all they're trying to do is expand their sphere of influence. They're not serious about actually fighting terrorists there. There's no real cause. They're just simply trying to increase their global power, right? So you know they're. Uh, sort of a destabilizing force in this, and, and they're not helping really resolve the matter. Yeah, so, and, th- and that was. If you want to live yeah. in a spheres of influence world, look at Syria. Yeah, that was. Uh, that, that's the thing is that spheres of influence never uh, line up neatly. Uh, they always mm. they always tend to slightly overlap, which kind of leads to one of the other points that we wanted to talk about today, which was um, what happens when these various because now we've we've got a point where there's enough of these kind of nationalist leaders who you know in many cases have a though not all have a, a kind of an authoritarian bent but certainly have a sort of populist and and nationalist and sort of our country first kind of bent mm-hmm. and uh what's going to happen when they start to to collide with each other early on what we've seen is that that it's it's you know it kind of smooths over some some difficult situations so like Trump, for example, has much warmer relations with certain leaders around the world that Obama was like, I don't like what you're doing because you're violating human rights or you're destabilizing mm-hmm. the peace. So, so like, the, like the Obama administration or if if Hillary had won, the, the Hillary Clinton administration would never have been like, congratulations uh, to Erdogan for winning the referendum in, in Turkey on the, the, the con- changing the constitution. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that part, that part seems... Uh, in some ways, it, it it almost makes things easier, um, though at at cost to you know uh, civilians in some certain countries. But I think there's a longer term part to this that that people don't even think about, the, the, where it's 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 two steps away. But it's like, what happens when the nationalist in in Russia and the nationalist in the United States disagree? Like what we saw with the Syrian strike. Um, that's the, I mean, that's the part where having an international rules-based order has kind of kept the peace. And if every nationalist is kind of out for their own interest, it's inherently, I mean, it's, it's inherently destabilizing. It's just asking for conflict, either direct or, or, or proxy. Yeah, agreed. Absolutely. And I think that's one of the, the funny ironies, I suppose, of, of Russia's, you know, meddling in, in, in interference in, in the U.S. elections, of course, but then, you know, in the U.K. and France and, and elsewhere. Um, they're supporting all of these pretty extreme, I mean, they've given, you know, loans, billions of dollars to, to the Le Pen campaign. Uh, you know, the AFD in Germany, they've supported supported numerous throughout Central and in Eastern Europe, numerous sort of, you know, pretty far right wing uh, powers uh, in, in all these countries. The, the irony is that that's not actually in Russia's real interest to support these types of nationalists who aren't necessarily all totally pro-Russian. Um, maybe more to the point is that you know they Russia's fundamental policy here isn't about supporting nationalism. It's it's as it has always been historically. It's about creating disunity and divisions across the Western world so that they could sort of you know instead of fighting a, a united or, or at least trying to oppose a united force in the EU and in, in the US and in NATO, you know try to sort of divide and conquer and go against individual countries. Right. So they're looking for more disunity, but. Uh, this really isn't in their interest necessarily because then you have, uh, you know, these countries increasing their military, increasing their defense, looking at the at external forces and seeing threats around. If you're in Europe, obviously that external threat, that destabilizing force 
always seems to be Russia, of course, to, in, in the eyes of particularly, you know, a lot of the former Warsaw Pact countries, you know, throughout Central Europe. Um, so this really isn't in their interest to see these nationalists come into power, uh, you know, build up their defenses, you know, look at Russia as, as, as a possible existential threat or an enemy. Um, and so the, this might not work in the long run for Russia. And I agree. I mean, I just cited sort of that one example that's very European specific. Um, but I think that is precisely the point that this, the rise of, of nationalism isn't necessarily good for, you know, calming conflicts. And instead it would inevitably, in my opinion, as you mentioned, probably increase the risk of, of more conflicts and, and justify political leaders to walk their countries into conflicts. It also, I mean, there's there's a surprising element of this where, I mean, it's it's the classic, and you see this throughout history and international relations, the sort of swallowing the spider to catch the fly uh, phenomenon, where basically, in order to deal with whatever their biggest threat is right now, people ally with strange and unsavory bedfellows, mm. Um, mm -hmm. which comes back to bite them later on. So like right now for Russia, the biggest, the biggest threat is a united NATO uh, and a united Europe and the United States against them, you know, encroaching on their influence and what they see is their, their historic role in Ukraine and other places. And so they're like, let's, let's encourage nationalists to break up the EU. But then those nationalists wind up being more toxic and dangerous to international peace than, than, than anything that preceded them but it's like people don't think that far ahead and and the same thing in reverse like you see these like in any other time getting massive funding from from russia would be fatal to a campaign like that would be a huge scandal but now it's like le pen voters don't seem to care <laughs> right mm -hmm. <laughs> right exactly. and trump voters didn't care right well and uh, i think I think this is this is it's all. I mean, there's so many interesting things going on, and how many how many angles to look at. I mean, just talking about the Russia China one. I mean, when we're talking about sort of this evolving, uh, you know, world order, and how, if you want to say it's de devolving or whichever, but this maybe this switch, what we're starting to see, maybe we're seeing the the onset of a fundamental change in the international system, which will accelerate in the coming years. I think that's possible. I'm not entirely certain, but we could very well be seeing the roots of that taking hold currently, right? Um, this actually, the, the irony is that this isn't really in China's or Russia's in, uh, interests. I mean, if anything, countries like China and Russia have benefited massively because of the world order that the U.S. has created. This has allowed China's rise. And, and taken, you know, these are the two countries which have been talking about, you know, non-interference, sovereignty. I mean, these are the words that, you know, Woodrow Wilson <laughs> talked about, right? I mean, this is going back historically. This is extreme. This is a very liberal program. These are the countries that Russia and China have been talking about the, these types of things, actually, in benefiting from them. Obviously, highly hypocritically, as you know, Russia stations troops in Moldova and takes away parts of Ukraine and Georgia and interferes in elections elsewhere. Da, 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 da. Um, lots of examples, but I mean, fundamentally, you think Russia wants to leave a rules-based order based on sovereignty when they sh share a border thousands and thousands of miles with China, the you know the largest country by population and and by purchasing power, the largest, you know, GDP in the world. No, they're benefiting from it. They're thanking God that, you know, there is this international, these international rules that allows them to maintain their sovereignty and maintain that border, right? In the spheres of influence world, that can very easily change and, and work against, you know, Russia's interests going forward. So there's a lot of sort of funny ironies amid this whole 
changing world order. And, and, and when you look more from the Western perspective, um, I, I think this is this is just a classic case of you know we forget how bad it can be or how, how bad it was. We, you know the the collective memory, you know it's sort of a, a grass is greener complex sort of of. You know, we, we forget the drawbacks of that old world and see only the negatives and the inadequacies of our, you know, of the current world. We take the good things for granted, subconsciously feel that we can sort of maintain the good things and, and not lose them along the way. Um, but it, it's just, they don't know the Pandora's box, I think, that, that you know, a lot of these people that they're, they're actually voting for and what, what they're getting involved in. So, so we're, we're 100 days, we're 100 days into Trump's presidency and... Mm. Um, he hasn't really actually done anything yet. He's he sort of tried, but has been blocked by the courts and Congress and and such. And and uh, basically, what we've seen is that forty percent of America is just going to stick with him until the end. Like they they there's right. just nothing that will shake them from supporting him. But most of the rest of America is is not super enthused by what they're seeing. One thing that I'm really interested in is is because th- there seemed to be this kind of tidal wave of nationalisms that were cascading across not just Europe and the United States, but especially Europe and the United States. I mean, there's there's, there's sorts of different uh, actors, you know, Erdogan has been in power for a long time, Duterte in the Philippines. So there's 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 other sort of parallels to, to this in, in other countries, but like there just seemed to be a whole cascade of elections. The, you know, the AFD was rising in the polls. Geert Wilders was rising in the polls. Le Pen was rising in the polls. Uh, Trump won. Brexit happened. Um and I'm curious if there's going to be an, a reverse Trump effect, because mm-hmm. one of the things about Trump is that he's incredibly unpopular in Europe. It kind of reminds me of back in the 2000s when I was traveling in Europe and people would mm. people would sort of accost me about about George W. Bush and like, <laughs> you didn't support him, did you? Um, it's right. kind of like that. So I'm curious if, the, if you think there's going to be kind of like an anti-Trump backlash where people see Trump in power and turn away mm. from his equivalents in, in European elections. Right, and, and it's it's and it's a very timely question. I mean, I'm going to make some statements here about the French elections, and then I'll I'll probably when we finish the podcast, check the news and see <laughs> see that uh, you know I, I'm way off when the when the voting comes in here in about 20 minutes. But um, a lot a lot of interesting things, and and I also I, I was living abroad for years uh, during the Bush administration, and then and then also I was living in Italy at the time when Obama was inaugurated, and and suddenly the the sort of demeanor towards uh, Americans uh, improved literally overnight. <laughs> uh, and people were very impressed with with our uh, with our country. Suddenly, after, you know, when 24 hours earlier they were uh, looking down on, on on a lot of Americans in, in the U.S. government, of course. Um, so, yeah, your point is it, it, it's really it's really interesting. Um, uh, I I do fundamentally, and like I said, we're going to find out here about the French elections, the the first round at least here, two weeks from now, then in the runoff. Um, my personal feeling is that I still think this is actually what we've seen in Brexit and Trump and in the world got surprised by them is a specific Anglophone world issue. Okay. And, and, and the reason I sort of think that is, is precisely this reverse Trump effect that, that you were getting at. What we've seen since Trump's got, was elected in November is actually, we've seen Le Pen's uh, support actually falls to an extent. We've seen the AFD in Germany, their support fall to an extent. We've seen Merkel uh, and, and another guy, Schultz, but in particular, Merkel's support has has improved pretty significantly. Um, so, it, definitely within Europe, the the sense is, holy crap, this things can go very wrong, and we do not want 
somebody in office, you know, who, who even resembles someone like Trump. And, and likewise, in the Dutch elections, of course, as you mentioned, we, we saw there was a bit of a move right overall, but they didn't take, you know, this sort of the builders and, and the extreme right. He, he didn't gain as much as, as people had expected. So um, I, I do fundamentally think it's an Anglophone world issue. And, and I think the, the point of that is that um, sort of tacitly or subconsciously, you know, the voters in the UK and the US are, are a little bit more um, maybe uh, risk-taking in terms of willing to test our, you know, our system, our institutions, you know, the rule of law. They feel that fundamentally, you know, we can shake up the system and in the end we'll come out hopefully better, right? Now, maybe this might be naive, but nonetheless, I think that's fundamentally what people were thinking when they went to the polls that, you know what, let's take a chance, let's take a risk here, let's kick the system and let's see how it bounces back. And then hopefully, you know, things are better in the end, right? I don't think people are that risk-loving in France or Germany. And I, and I think fundamentally it's because they actually have, in their pretty recent history, lived under far, I mean, incomparably worse levels of, of state violence and state repression that the U.S. and the U.K., frankly, n- never really lived under. The experience of the 19th century, the, the experience of World War One, experience of World War Two, were massively different if you were living on the continent compared to if you're living in the U.S. or in the U.K., so I think fundamentally, you know, I, you know, for French voters today, I mean, the Paris Commune wasn't that long ago for them, right? I mean, this and such extreme bloodshed in the center of Paris, you know, they, I, I think fundamentally then it's encouraging voters to walk into the, to the poll booth. They've actually been inspired by Trump's victory to then sort of push back against this anti-establishment tide because they have seen historically how bad it can go. Like how wrong it actually can get and how it can destroy lives. So it, it they still have the sort of implicit fear, I think, in, in, in the mindset of the continental European voter that maybe isn't, and maybe naively, um, uh, maybe wrongly, but maybe isn't quite there for the U.S. and U.K. voter. And, and I think it's fundamentally because of our historical experience and, and our political culture and political systems. I, I also think... I'm hoping, yeah. I'm hoping. Yeah. <laughs> I also think that... that- the, the French election shows that there are multiple ways to uh, challenge the status quo because I think like people are clearly fed up with the establishment and the the status mm-hmm. quo as mm-hmm. it is, mm-hmm. but that doesn't necessarily mean they have to vote for Le Pen. Like each of the candidates in the French election uh, of the ones who can actually win in some way or another is going to sh- would shake up the system a little bit. Like e- even Macron, who's like the most uh, the the closest I would say to the existing order. Uh, in mm. terms of his his economic internationalism and and his liberal internationalism mm-hmm. and uh, even he doesn't belong to a political party, <laughs> so right, exactly. even even voting for him is is in some way shaking up the system. I think it's it's telling that right. that basically the 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 two main parties in France who have kind of like shifted back and forth in terms of who's running the country uh, have not fielded candidates who actually really seriously have a chance of winning. Right. And I, 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 I think maybe France has found, again, we're going to find out here pretty pretty soon, but maybe they found a way to sort of square this circle, right? But a, a guy who's technically, uh, you know, he's not from either, uh, you know, main party, um, so he can be sort of branded maybe as anti-establishment, yet at the same time, he's as conventional and traditional <laughs> European political, you know, political views uh, that, you know, that, that you would expect in Europe. So... Enough to shake up the order because he kind of sort of seems from the outside and new and it sends a message to the established 
political parties and players, um, but without doing anything too terribly drastic. So maybe they, they found the nice happy medium where they can uh, not actually do anything too terribly drastic in terms of policies, but send a nice message to politicians that things have to change, right? Th- that's, we'll see. That's one possibility, or you know, in an hour we're going to find out that it's, it's Melanchon versus <laughs> Le Pen. And, and Le Pen, yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I, I did say, though, right before we started this, Macron was in a, 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 a nice lead, uh, the, the polls had showed, and that's between Melanchon and Fillon and Le Pen, uh, it was... Uh, it was very close. So it, it, it's very possible. I mean, maybe I'm being too optimistic here, but um, it's very possible Le Pen may not actually make the, the second round based upon just the polling I, I saw about 45 minutes ago. Uh, I mean, I'm crossing my fingers here, and these are my political views, but uh, um, it's uh, we'll find out shortly. But it, it, people take it for granted that she's a, a contender, and she very well may not be in, even in the runoff. Uh, we'll see here. Should, so. Yeah, I, I'm trying to. I'm trying to say, like, what do you think is the worst case scenario? I mean, like, obviously, the worst case scenario is like you know nuclear war and we all die. But like, what like the, uh, among things that are that are sort of like realistic, realistic. and sort of like conceivable uh, in in the near future. Uh, like, like let's say that Le Pen wins. Is it the end of the EU? Like, how close are we to the breakup of everything that 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 is kind of held the international order? I mean, is it the end of NATO? I mean, Melanchol Mel- Mel- wants to wants to leave NATO also. So like, and he's mm-hmm. he's polling at almost 20%. So like, is it really, is, is this the breakup of the the West as we as we know it, if if one of these two actually wins in the French elections? Um, no, is the short answer. And, and this is for all the fear mongering and all the headlines you've been seeing for the last year in particular. This is, this is what's really fundamentally annoying. Uh, no, it, it's not. And, and for a few reasons. Um, but the, um, I guess the first thing I'd say is that it doesn't mean the break up the EU in 2017 or 2018. But I think, you know, historians in 2040 will say, oh, remember when the EU broke up in 2028? Yeah, we can trace the roots back to 2015, 2016, 2017, okay? That may be uh, a, a potential scenario. And, and I, I mean, I, that's too hard to say. I mean, that, that's so far in the future. But I do think this could be the beginnings, as I mentioned earlier, of, of a developing new international order. Okay, now what does that actually mean? It, it, it politically, economically, in terms of nationalism, in terms of, you know, self-identity, in terms of international trade, it, it, it's endless. But... Um, I don't think we are talking about the breakup of the West in the near in the next two three years here. Now, fundamentally, sort of on the ground logistically, m- making this happen isn't really a reality. Let's say even in a, in a scenario where Le Pen wins, and she's promised to do an you know EU referendum and pull out of the euro, she doesn't have the support to do that in the country. One, she doesn't have the support you know if she even got a referendum of French voters who are highly in favor of the EU and the euro. So she wouldn't even win a referendum. The bigger problem is she probably wouldn't even get to table a referendum because she doesn't have the support in the parliament. And we're going to have parliamentary elections here in June in in France. And, I mean, the the National Front isn't going to do anything. I mean, they don't have nearly the support, you know, at that level in the the parliament. Um, So she really doesn't have, you know, that possibility. Again, maybe things develop, and in five years from now, you know, these are the roots of these changes here. Uh, things could change. But, I mean, fun- fundamentally, it's just, it's not there. And you look at the countries like Germany or France who are critical to, you know, the, the central primary, you know, originators and drivers of the EU and, and the Euro. Um, 
they those populations are generally speaking pretty overwhelmingly in favor of, of both. So, um, you know, it's 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 just sort of it's it's not there logistically to do it. Um, Italy and the banking sector and 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 those economic problems, and then you have Italian elections next year. That becomes uh, maybe even more of a threat, though. Um, there's a little bit less support for the euro in in the EU in Italy to an extent. The banking sector is in, is still in pretty troubled um, uh, position, but even that, uh, we 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 do scenario planning in, in our company. We only give that about a 10, 50 percent chance of a banking sector crisis, uh, you know, developing in Italy in the next couple of years. Here, uh, you know, there's enough resources in in the private capital markets. There's enough government uh, sort of support, uh, you know, will political support to, to, to recapitalize and, and support the banking system. And likewise, the ECB, I think, would, would step in, as they did with Greece, you know, several years ago, uh, to make sure that they would avoid a crisis. So, you know, logistically, how would these, aside from just sort of the, our active imaginations, and we're seeing changes in the West, so we assume the next victim here is the EU and the breakup of the EU, because politicians are actually talking about it in the public sphere, and, and have some level of support, it's, you know, on the ground for that to occur is really, really, really hard. So it, it becomes really a different issue aside from what, whatever politicians might be saying publicly. The, the best thing that happened, I, I thought, like in the last couple of weeks, was the reaction. So, so there was a there was kind of a, a spat over the future of Gibraltar. If uh, you know, mm. now that the UK has invoked Article Fifty, and uh, one there was one British parliamentarian who suggested that the 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 Theresa May would go to war to, uh, against Spain to protect Gibraltar. It was very like 17th century, and the, your your reaction was like basically everyone in Europe's reaction was just like, "Come on, <laughs> this is ridiculous!" Yeah, right. Like the guy got laughed out of the room, and that reaction, yeah. rather than like fear that this could actually happen, I think is like the best sign that that norms have been established that are not going away. We are not actually going right. to see a war between the British and the right, Spanish right. over Gibraltar. I, no. you know, I hope. Um, <laughs> so, you know, there, there, there are still, you know, there, there is still, uh, you know, some good in this world and it's worth fighting for, uh, to, to quote from Lord of the Rings. Um, right. <laughs> Mark, thank you so much for coming on the podcast once again. Before you go, I just want to get your sort of, I mean, it seems pretty open and shut, but, uh, um, Theresa May's decision to uh, invoke snap elections in the UK mm-hmm. where, where you are based. Um, mm. it, it just looks like she just wants to obliterate labor and, and have a stronger hand for dealing with Brexit. Is there any, is there any sort of thought Correct. beyond that basically? Yeah, no, no, there's a lot of interesting nuances. I think the most interesting thing was that it sort of made sense that, that she would call elections and people had been talking about this for six months. Like, you know, why wouldn't she call elections? And the only thing that was surprising was that she and, and her, you know, her administration were insistent, even the week before she called elections, were insistent that they would not be calling elections. So the only surprise here was, okay, why were you saying for six months consistently that you wouldn't be calling elections? And frankly, for that reason, they will obliterate labor almost assuredly. Um, it made sense for her to, to call elections, particularly since she most definitely doesn't want to be facing elections while in the middle of Brexit negotiations uh, and the and the exit from the actual real exit from the EU in 2019, you know, just prior to the 2020 uh, originally planned UK elections. So for a lot of reasons, it makes perfect sense that she should have done this. Um, th- there are some, I guess, some interesting nuances. I, I think the, the most important part is is that 
she's stepping down from this idea of hard Brexit. And I think that was a political game all along. Hard Brexit would have been disastrous, um, at least potentially disastrous for the UK. Uh, she had to say that, though, for her support base, for the, well, not her support base specifically, but for that, that Brexit camp, right, uh, about getting out of the EU and we're leaving, done, goodbye. Um, so that's what she sort of, you know, when she came out with her big speech earlier in the year and, and said they'd be invoking Article 50 in March, which she did on schedule, um, that was how she framed it. Now, in reality, she knows clearly, despite she's, you know, the fact she's not exactly saying it in the public forum, um, that they need a soft Brexit, okay? They need something to maintain some level of the, the similar, you know, trade and customs union deal that, that they've been enjoying while a member of the EU. By doing these elections, that's how she can actually move towards a soft Brexit because she can get more Tory support. Tories are, generally speaking, you know, for a softer Brexit. When they increase their numbers, they're going to be outnumbering those hard Brexit Tory uh, supporters, okay? So by doing this, she's actually probably improving her position in negotiations with the EU. She can then go to her domestic population and say, hey, we got more Tories in office. I'm still doing Brexit. We follow the political system. I'm living up to you know British standards of rule of law here, and I'm not just being a dictator. Although I did talk about doing hard Brexit because of our political system, because of the the direction of the Tories in the House House of Commons and the House of Lords, um, we had to move towards a, a softer Brexit, which, by the way, is far better for the country's future economically, politically, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so it's an interesting nuance there, and, and it's it's a good political calculation, but I think also this shows that the political games are beginning. So, you know, after, after saying for months and months you're not going to do elections, and then you do them, and she's doing it for this purpose so she can move towards a softer Brexit, um, she's, starting, she's starting to play politics, uh, whereas before she kind of came across as this, you know, steadfast, uh, you know, official who was highly, um, not that she's not principled, but, you know, going to stick to her guns no matter what, well... She's clearly playing some political games here, which is probably uh, in the benefit of the country. I, I feel that that because uh, one one analysis that I saw was basically like the 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 question is do you want do, do you want to have to face Corbyn in the election now or do you want to just enjoy having Corbyn as the opposition leader for the next three years? Mm. Um, <laughs> but I'm not yeah. I'm not sure that like. He's so stubborn that, like, even if they get annihilated, I feel like he might not step down. Like, she might get both. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she could. Like I said, though, I don't even think this has to do with labor. I mean, they're, they're a, an afterthought, and, you know, they, they almost don't matter. Um, I think that, again, this has to do with Tories. I, I, I think this has to do with sidelining as much as possible, just through raw numbers, bringing in more soft Brexiteers and sidelining the hard Brexiteers. I, I, I really, I, I think she's focusing on the Tory party, just absolutely certain that Labour is going to be losing even more seats. They're, you know, they're in such a terrible position. And then, and then also, I think she's taking for granted that Lib Liberal Democrats, you know, can't really take too many seats or they won't gain any support. That could be an interesting sort of flying the ointment there. We'll, we'll see how that develops. But uh, I, I think she's probably correct, but that could be a surprise. The Liberal Democrats may be able to get, particularly after this whole Brexit stuff, um, that's, that has kind of, you know, you know, ruffled feathers with some traditional Tory supporters. Um, Liberal Democrats maybe could get a, get a better showing than, than expected, but she's probably still correct. Tories were going to win in landslide, and it strengthens her hand in Brexit talks. 
Mark back to me. Thanks again for coming on the podcast. Uh, where can they find uh, you on the internet uh, if, if people want to see more of, of your work? Well, you can go to FrontierStrategyGroup.com. So that's the company I work for. It's Frontier Strategy Group, FSG. Um, and we have blogs, so you'll, you'd see blogs of mine, but you would see blogs of all the other analysts. Uh, it's an emerging markets firm, so we cover the entire globe. Um, and uh, and then my LinkedIn page, I have, I've done I have some quotations that are on my LinkedIn page. And, uh, and also, I will be publishing a piece in the Harvard Business Review about uh, doing business in Russia amid the downturn in U.S.-Russian uh, relations and, and what that means for businesses. So, um, you know, some avenues you can find me out there in, in the World Wide Web. As for the podcast, you can find it on uh, iTunes at uh, Ambassadors at Large. Uh, you can search for it and uh, subscribe for free. Uh, if you like the podcast, leave us a review. It helps spread the word about the podcast. You can also find it uh, along with my blog, music, and various other things, research, etc., uh, on my website at joegenie.com. That's J-O-E-G-E-N-I.com. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. We'll be back with another episode real soon. Until then, so long.